Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Our two political scientists today from the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, we have Chris Larimer with us, professor of political science there. Hi, Chris. Hello, Ben. Evan Renfro with us as well, associate professor of political science at UNI. Hi, Evan. Good day, Ben. Uh, Nice to be with you. Nice to have you on board and our listeners as well. If you'd like to chip in a question or a comment about any of the oh, half dozen um, political news topics we'll be touching this hour, uh, please do. 1-866-780-9100. River to River at iowapublicradio.org is our email. Later in the program, we'll talk about... Uh, uh, the former president's loss in that immunity case that was announced in the appeals uh, federal appeals court. Also, I, I want to have uh, Evan and Chris share their thoughts about a new poll released today that uh, from NPR, Marist, uh, uh, a number of factors there. But one of the one of the interesting findings: uh, preserving democracy tops the list of issues for voters in this election year for independents and for Democrats, but not for Republicans. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but uh, first of all, all things uh, having to do with immigration, border security, um, we'll talk just a moment in just a moment about how the Senate Republicans are walking away from that bipartisan border security and immigration deal that, well, is a result of months of painstaking negotiations. Um, but first, uh, let's tackle the other one related to immigration, the U.S., failing to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas yesterday night, um, a defeat for the Republican-led push to impeach a Biden administration cabinet secretary. All uh, Democrats and four Republicans voted uh, against the two articles of impeachment. It was 214 to 216. Uh, All four of Iowa's Republican representatives in the U.S. House voted in favor of the impeachment. Uh, Chris, let me turn to you. The significance of of this defeat? Uh, I mean, you don't bring a a vote to the House unless, as the Speaker, unless uh, you think it's going to um, win, do you, in normal circumstances? No, in normal circumstances, you wouldn't do that. I mean, the, the Speaker of the House, that's uh, the role of the Speaker is to really understand the caucus and and what's going to get through. And so, I mean, it's significant in the, in the sense that it failed, uh, you know, in the lead up to the to, to the vote. There were questions among Republicans about whether or not these the articles of impeachment met the constitutional definition uh, of impeachment of, you know, quote, high crimes and misdemeanor. Um, the, the articles were more about, I think, as they said, uh violations of public trust and um, failing up to uphold policy. And we heard Republicans in the lead up to yesterday saying that that was not, those were not grounds for impeachment, but then the, the speaker went ahead with the vote and it, and it failed and it sort of brought back memories of what we've seen over the last several months within, within the U.S. House in terms of Republicans having difficulty keeping their entire caucus together on, on some issues, whether that's spending, whether that's on uh, votes for the speaker. Um, so it's certainly significant in that way. It's in, in, a, in a political sense. In a policy sense, it's also significant in that immigration is an issue that m- many Americans feel needs to be addressed, mm-hmm. that there needs to be policy reform on. And this is a, a, yet another example, I think, for a lot of Americans of, of, about what's wrong with Congress, about a failure to address a pressing issue 
that we just continue to see deadlock when we have a, a Congress that where one chamber is controlled by one party and the other is controlled by another party. It's just the difficulty of getting major policy reform through. And we've seen even data just generally about the 117th, 118th Congress in terms of the number of bills being passed, how, how, how that's dropped off as, as we've seen this rise in partisanship. And so, I, you know, I think it's it's a failure on a couple of fronts. Yeah. Um, back to your point, Chris, to elaborate on that and have Evan comment here. Republicans laying blame for uh, all of this, the border crisis um, uh, at the foot of the Homeland Security Secretary. Uh, they say he needs to go. Obviously, if you want to impeach someone, you're, you're saying that. They say the Biden administration uh, has either gotten rid of policies that were in place under the Trump administration that were, they say, it deterring migrants or the Biden administration implemented policies uh, of its own that have attracted migrants. Evan, what do you make of the, the blame, uh, the specifics of the blame that the Republicans are casting? Well, most of this, of course, is election year performance art, but it is true that uh, under President Biden, immigration has spiked up to about 10,000 a day. One of the agreements in this bipartisan piece of legislation uh, was to knock knock that down to a maximum of 5,000. Now, the criticism of that was that that would, in effect, uh, make it 5,000 a day uh, in, in migration instead of 10,000 a day. Well, some people said that was a pretty good deal and it wasn't enough. It was not enough for others, but you had a Republican congressman go so far as to say, uh, I'm not going to do a doggone thing to help a Democrat in an election year. And former President Trump has come out against this and says, I, you know, I need to be president in order to fix the immigration crisis. And the immigration issue is one that President Biden is getting absolutely hammered on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in every poll, you see that. So it's a major problem uh, for him, and the Republicans aim to keep it that way. Yeah. We, we, what about the argument, though, Evan, that the— it's not the actions of this administration drawing migrants to the southern border, but this sort of worldwide phenomenon here uh, that we're seeing migrants driven by political, economic, perhaps climate uh, turmoil, turmoil. They're just seeking a better way of life. And we're part of a, uh, what we're experiencing is perhaps the beginning of a, a worldwide um, migrant crisis here. Oh, yeah, that's definitely all a part of it. I think in case of the southern border in particular, it has to do with uh, the American economy right now, despite what people seem to, in popular imagination, believe that the American economy is not doing so good, which is actually doing quite well. And we need workers and folks that don't have the opportunities in other places want in on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's dovetail into the um, border deal failures. Uh, U.S. Senate Republicans walking away from this bipartisan border security immigration deal uh, after months of painstaking bipartisan negotiations. Uh, they are siding with their House colleagues and also with the presidential frontrunner, Donald Trump. Uh, this this bill was released just a couple of days ago. Um, not uh, not only uh, the failure of it, uh, the blocking of this bill, I mean to say, uh, leaves laws in place uh, that GOP lawmakers have said have led to a crisis at our southern border, but also because 
Republicans uh, attach this as a stalemate over uh, assistance for Ukraine and Israel, uh, which were rolled into this package here. Uh, So let's listen to a couple of voices here uh, and then, uh, Chris and Evan, get your views on this. President Biden squarely blaming uh, former President Trump for potentially blocking the deal when speaking with reporters at the White House yesterday. All indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. House Speaker Mike Johnson telling reporters also yesterday the deal would make the situation at the border worse. Everybody should understand that this is a fundamental responsibility of the federal government to secure the border. If you don't have a secure border, you don't have safety, you don't have security, and you don't have sovereignty. And Republicans simply cannot vote for the bill in good conscience. And that is why I declared it dead on arrival, and it looks like right now it may be in some jeopardy. It may be on life support in the Senate. Um, we welcome that development because this is a matter that must be addressed in a manner that, address, that, that actually solves the problem. Now, this bill was specifically crafted, Evan, to meet GOP demands that Democrats um, link border policy changes to the request for aid to Israel and Ukraine. Uh, how would you describe what happened here? Well, I mean, this is just showing you the the inside beltway chaos within the GOP. Uh, when you had former President Trump from the outside saying that this bill is bad, that shifted the discourse to where Republicans that need to get that are wanting to get reelected have to then follow former President Trump's sort of dictation here because he carries so much weight within the party. And so I think that is a main cause of this sort of uh, breakdown in what was uh, pretty well bipartisan agreement, certainly in the Senate. By the time it got to the House, you know, you have this this breakdown. Yeah, yeah. And Senator Langford also in on those negotiations with some, some harsh words exchanged there between Republicans. Um, uh, Chris, same question for you. How would you describe what happened? And, and I, I suppose, um, is this dead? I think we're seeing now in our... Um, the latest uh, with this this deal doomed um, the the majority leader in the Senate Schumer uh, pushing Republicans to vote on separate Ukraine and Israel aid. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a difficult path forward for it. I mean that you have even uh, Senator James Lankford, uh, one of the original uh, sponsors of this, along with Democrat Chris Murphy, um, but James Lankford, a Republican initially, you know, pushing for these changes, working, as you said, for months on a bipartisan deal, now sort of shifting gears, recognizing, as, as Evan pointed out, how quickly the, the political climate changed on this. I think that's one of the remarkable things is how quickly all of this changed um, with with outside influence uh, from, from, from Donald Trump and, um, you know, how this, the dynamic between the House and the Senate, how quickly that, that shifted to being, you know, essentially on the same page. You had Senator McConnell, uh, the Republican leader, you know, now starting to shift gears a little bit as well. So I, I, th- I think it's a very, very difficult path forward. And like I said, the remarkable thing is how quickly this changed. We've known from polling, as Evan mentioned earlier, that immigration is an issue that President Biden um, has struggled on consistently over the last several months. And so there was, I think, hope from a lot of people that, well, if you have bipartisan agreement, maybe this can move forward. Now it looks like it's almost just settled back into 
I think, as you, as you said, or as Evan said, just kind of your basic election year politics when it comes to um, the issue of immigration. Mm-hmm. Interesting that the measure uh, had the support, has the support of business lobbying groups, as well as mm-hmm. organization representing the mayors of every U.S. city with a population above 30,000, labor union for border patrol agents, which endorsed Donald Trump in 2020, supports this plan. Editorial boards of the Washington Post, which, of course, leans a bit left. The Wall Street Journal, though, also uh, supporting it deeply conservative there. Uh, when we come back after a short break, a few more uh, words on this immigration issue to localize it here in Iowa. Uh, our governor, Kim Reynolds, dismissing the need for a new federal immigration law um, uh, this week. Uh, she said President Biden should use existing authority to combat illegal immigration and is um, sending, um, willing to send troops again to Texas. We'll talk about that when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer, along with political scientists Evan Renfro and Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa. You're invited to join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, talking currently about uh, immigration in our politics uh, news, also, uh, well, the, the um, failure of the impeachment vote in the U.S. House uh, against the um, uh, Homeland Security Secretary uh, Mayorkas, also the, uh, um, the months-long negotiated uh, bipartisan Senate deal on on the border security evidently failing. Um, and let, let's talk about uh, uh, Iowa in this. Uh, the Iowa governor, Kim Reynolds, dismissing the need for a new federal immigration law earlier this week. She says the president should use his existing authority uh, to combat illegal immigration. If we want this crisis to end, then we have to help stop it. Because the president won't and hasn't, the federal government won't and hasn't, both have ignored it for more than three years. I've spoken with both the Adjutant Major General Osborne of the Iowa National Guard and Commissioner Baines with the Department of Public Safety to start preparing for a return mission to the border. I've also informed Governor Abbott uh, that Iowa stands ready again to support Operation Lone Star. That audio from our governor during a news conference at the state capitol Monday, uh, you heard her announce the more National Guard troops from Iowa to the southern border. Um, her comments coming the day after traveling to Eagle Pass, Texas, for a joint um, conference, news conference on illegal immigration. A reminder, last year, uh, Governor Reynolds sent 109 National Guard soldiers to Texas. Um, 31 state patrol officers and agents followed uh, last year. Uh, the total cost for last year's mission, about $2.1 million. Uh, Reynolds said that was paid for with the Federal American Rescue Plan funding intended to help America recover from the COVID uh, pandemic. Chris, help us understand how the governor's actions now and in past years, sending 
Iowa officers and, uh, and uh, uh, troops uh, uh, to help out the uh, Texas governor in Texas. How does this fit in this larger picture of Republicans turning against this bipartisan compromise? Well, I think for Republicans, it's, it's clear that, um, you know, immigration is, is, a, is a top issue. We see that in, in polling that for Republican voters, immigration is a, a top issue. And so I think, you know, there, it, it's clear that this is going to be an issue going forward for the, for the election and, and that um, whether you're talking about governors or Republicans in, in federal office are going to continue to talk about this issue um, and continue to try to try to push for change. But as the governor acknowledged, um, as others have said, this is now getting caught up in election year politics, yeah. but I don't, but it's certainly not going to go away. I think, you know, it, it, it takes us back a little bit almost to the 2016 election, which, which was in large part about um, the issue of immigration. And so you wonder if we're kind of going back to having an, an, a, another election where immigration is going to be a large part of that discussion. And so it, I, I think what, you know, the, like I said, the actions you're seeing from, from, from Governor Reynolds, from other governors on the issue of, uh, of immigration fits with what we're seeing in sort of the, the atmospherics of the, the 2024 presidential cycle, yeah. um, that this issue is just is, is front and center at the moment. Kim Reynolds making the point, she says, we don't need a new law. Uh, we need uh, Biden. He uh, needs to follow the existing law. Uh, Evan, I know uh, you're, you're not an expert on immigration law, but, uh, I, you know, the question here, does the current president need a new law to act on immigration? The former president, Trump, tried repeatedly to tighten our country's immigration rules, his efforts frequently blocked by courts. Um, for conflicting with um, existing asylum laws. Your thoughts there, Evan? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you can try to do these executive orders, which Trump tried and was shot down by the courts. You do need congressional legislation if you want serious solutions. If you want these symbolic, I'm going to send some state troopers down to Eagle Pass, Texas, you know, that I just as soon have the 30 state troopers in Iowa as somebody who lives in Iowa and drives on the roads to keeping us keeping us safe rather than uh, living in Eagle Pass, uh, trying to help the Texas state police. Mm-hmm. It's River to River from IPR News, our Politics Wednesday edition of the program. Evan Renfro and Chris Larimer are political scientists from the University of Northern Iowa. Let's move on to news from yesterday. The federal appeals appeals court in Washington rejecting Donald Trump's claims of presidential immunity for actions he took to remain in office after the 2020 election. Now, this clears the way for his federal trial on conspiracy and obstruction charges to move forward. Uh, uh, Trump is expected to appeal this ruling. Uh, Here's a quote from the judges, uh, this panel, uh, flatly rejecting uh, the uh, uh, former president's uh, uh, case here uh, that they're making. It would be a striking paradox, right, the judges, if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. Um, So uh, Trump has until Monday to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Chris, what do you see here? Uh, Probably not a big surprise that they ruled in in this way, is it? 
Not particularly. There have been some hints along the way that that's where this was likely to, to go. Um, but, you, you know, it's um, I think if you think about it in terms of the, the support for the former president in terms of fundraising, right, you expect the pattern that we've seen with 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 indictments along the way that that pattern would hold in the sense that, you know, that the, his supporters, this is not going to deter them. And in, in, in many ways, mm -hmm. it may you know, increase his support. You expect him to use this on, on, in terms of the campaign, in terms of fundraising. But it also, as you said, it allows us to move forward. But it, it's the question mark is, you know, what does the U.S. Supreme Court do now? Right. Do that? Do they take this up? Do they do they just let the case proceed? And then there's all this question of the timing of this, because initially this case was supposed to start uh, the first week of March. That that's been pushed back now. And it, it really comes down to when is this going to unfold? How, how close to November are we going to see the case moving forward, which it has the potential to completely reshape the entire presidential election for 2024? So it, it, it moves, it, it provides some certainty in the sense of, of allowing this to move forward. But now there's just the, the next level of uncertainty in terms of understanding what is the timing of all this? What is it going to look like over the next several months? Mm -hmm. That new um, NPR, PBS, NewsHour, Marist poll uh, in agreement, evidently, uh, with this uh, ruling. Two-thirds of respondents don't think Trump should have immunity from criminal prosecution for things he did as president. Uh, almost half the respondents continue to say they already think he has done something illegal. Um, at the same time, uh, more than two-thirds of Republicans say Trump should have immunity uh, from criminal prosecution. Uh, Evan, what do you see in the future? It's so hard to sort of ferret out what's going to happen in the next few months when we have these legal calendars, the political calendars. Your thoughts, Evan? Right. And the composition of the Supreme Court of the United States makes it, you know, all the more uncertain. But I can tell you that this appeals court, federal appeals court, uh, unanimously uh, with with the judges appointed by both, you know, by presidents from both political parties uh, took took this appeal uh, down. I mean, point by point, they sort of tore it up in a pretty strong uh, way. That you don't typically see much stronger lang language than you would typically see. So SCOTUS will have its hands full uh, deciding this. I mean, there are some things the president, of course, can and must do as commander-in-chief that would be illegal for anyone else to do, say, for instance, ordering a, a high-value target to be assassinated by a drone. Uh, but when it comes to other malfeasance, that's a different story. Yeah. It's interesting also here, Evan, that uh, more than 60 House Republicans signing a resolution declaring that Trump's actions on January 6th didn't amount to insurrection uh, as these uh, courts and officials weigh in on his eligibility to hold office here, uh, Evan. So that word insurrection, dissect that a bit of, a bit for us, if you could. And, and why is that, uh, you know, why is that up for debate? Well, I don't know why it's up for debate because it's pretty straightforward, really. The insurrection or an insurrection is when you try to impede the normal and lawful flow of the operation of the recognized government. Now, you can be held responsible under law for aiding. You don't have to partake in, in taking a ram to doors and macing Capitol Police officers, but for aiding or giving comfort to insurrectionists, this would be, this would be illegal. 
under in you know the Insurrection Act. Mm-hmm. Let's move on uh, to talk about our presidential primary. Um, yesterday, the none of these candidates option won in Nevada's symbolic Republican presidential primary contest. Evidently an embarrassing result for Nikki Haley, who was the only major candidate on the ballot. Um, she opted to compete in this state-run primary election instead of the party's presidential caucuses. Uh, former President Trump is the only major candidate on the caucuses on Thursday, and it will likely uh, he will likely sweep the state's Republican delegates as, as a result. Uh, Chris, help us understand here. It's, it's complicated. Is there any real significance uh, to none of these candidates, that option, winning in Nevada in this Republican presidential contest, primary contest? Well, yeah, it is complicated. And I think maybe one thing it does do, it it prevents the Haley campaign from, you know, putting out a headline saying that they won the Nevada primary. As you said, it's the Nevada caucuses, Republican caucuses that awards the delegates. And there was the change following a 2021 state law that said uh, Nevada needed to hold a primary. The Republican uh, Republicans in Nevada decided that they still wanted to go forward with the caucus and were allowed to do that. And, um, you know, the rules were such that if you were on the primary ballot, you couldn't be on the caucus ballot. The Haley campaign decided to compete on the primary ballot because they were the understanding is or at least the reporting was that they were they recognized that it was going to be a difficult task to try to overcome Trump on the, the caucus ballot and be on the traditional Nevada caucuses or compete in those caucuses. And so deciding to run on the primary but without winning the primary now, that that doesn't give the Haley campaign to to put out that headline to say that they won the Nevada primary. And and the Haley campaign, as we know, has a difficult road ahead. If if she is going to try to stop the momentum of the Trump campaign, there needs to be some indication that she is building support in some of these states. There, there her fundraising numbers have have come up a little bit, um, so that's that's positive. But then there's going to be this headline about you know that that none of the above candidates won, and you would expect her competitor Donald Trump to, to certainly talk about that on caucus night. You know when when he wins, when he presumably will win the Iowa the, the Nevada caucuses and win those delegates. So it is symbolic, but it does um, take away a little bit of momentum from the Haley campaign. Yeah, uh, we wanted to have a little bit of fun here as we talk about this presidential primary, as they did on SNL. Um, this past weekend, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley poked fun at herself uh, over a campaign misstep. Uh, but her primary target during the Saturday Night Live appearance was Donald Trump. Uh, she joined in a skit that mocked a stand in for the former president over his refusal to debate her and question his uh, mental fil- fitness. Um, here she is this past weekend. Um, Donald Trump's age, legal troubles, and a town hall debate sketch as the former uh, president is played by James Austin Johnson. Here's part of that sketch. Okay, our next question comes from someone who describes herself as a concerned South Carolina voter. Yes, hello. Why won't you debate Nikki Haley? Oh, my God, it's her, the woman who was in charge of security on January 6th. It's Nancy Pelosi. For the 100th time, that is not Nancy Pelosi. It is Nikki Haley. Are you doing okay, Donald? You might need a mental competency test. 
Now, the SNL writers also poked fun at the former South Carolina governor who was in that sketch. Uh, uh, an actress from the show The Bear asked her about what caused the Civil War. Of course, a reference to her comments at a New Hampshire town hall in December. I was just curious, what would you say was the main cause of the Civil War? Um, and do you think it starts with an S and ends with a lavery? <laughs> Yep, I probably should have said that the first time. And live from New York, it's Saturday night. Okay, uh, Chris, I don't know. Did you catch the SNL skit? I no, I did not. Catch it. <laughs> what this about you, Evan? Did came. you? <laughs> I, I did not. Okay. <laughs> All right. L- Evan, do, do you on, on Nikki Haley's prospects as we look toward this February 24th Republican primary? Um, I'm looking at uh, uh, the averages calculated by the five thir- five, by 538, 30 points, uh, the f- former president leading Haley there. Uh, nearly all the state's Republican officials endorsing the former president over their former governor. Um, what are your thoughts there? Right. But talking to the inside Beltway folks, it looks like the Haley strategy here is to actually stick with it, pick up and, you know, going to lose the primary, but going to pick up some delegates. So Mm -hmm. if Trump was to be convicted on one of these serious charges and it comes to be convention time and there's no other choice, she'll have a clear and strong case saying, look, I'm the one left standing. I actually have some delegates. And that would get that, and then of course that would push her over the edge when it when it actually uh, matters. Mm. Okay, so this uh, wouldn't necessarily be the death knell for her campaign in South Carolina if she's beat even by double digits, uh, Evan. It's embarrassing, right? But if if the strategy is hey, you you can take the punches and stick with it and get at, you know delegates here and there. Uh, somebody has to, or somebody, you know, theoretically has to run as a Republican, you know, nominee when it gets down to, you know, November and she would have a very strong, she would only, she would be the only one with a, with that strong official argument. And we do have polling, don't we, Chris, that shows Nikki Haley in, if it was a general election between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump and she campaigns on this, the polls look very good for her, don't they? Well, they, yeah, she does have, uh, there's a sense that she has a broader appeal within the electorate, particularly among voters who uh, are independent or more moderate uh, Republicans. She does have a stronger appeal. I mean, we even saw that in polling in Iowa, uh, part of the Iowa caucuses. And so we still see that nationwide. Um, I think the question then becomes, if, if she is trying to stay in this long term, how does she do that in a way where she gets she gets to the convention without really upsetting other other segments within the Republican electorate um, so that she is still seen as the, the, the most viable. But her campaign has has been centered for a long time on this issue of electability and that she is more electable than Donald Trump. OK, uh, when we come back after a short break, we'll continue the last uh, part of our program today with Chris Larimer and Evan Renfro. Politics Wednesday uh, will draw on Evan's Middle East Uh, expertise there to have him react to some of the latest uh, news uh, there. Uh, Also, um, their thoughts, uh, our two guests' thoughts, uh, after a month in session, what has attracted their attention at the Iowa State House? That's when we return, among other things. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine 
offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the healing room at upstreamfm.com. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer with this Politics Wednesday edition, Chris Larimer and Evan Renfro, our two political scientists from the University of Northern Iowa. Join us, 1-866-780-9100, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Let me toss out a, a question, uh, email question from Terry. This is a question that's <laughs> we've been asking for years, but uh, the latest version of your answers, gentlemen. <laughs> uh, Terry asks, why do you think so many people are willing to support Trump with all the charges against him, including sexual abuse? Um, that going back to, of course, the Access Hollywood uh, uh, tape and uh, the current uh, case in, in New York. Chris, um, you've probably answered that question countless times. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a good question. And, you know, I think you can relate it back to, to political science research, right? For, for decades, we've talked about the strength of party uh, identification, um, how strong a pull that is, um, is, that it's really part of someone's core social identity, particularly for folks who um, pay attention to politics on a daily basis. And, you know, as we've come into this sort of hyper-partisan political atmosphere, that that sense of identity, if, it, if it's feeling threatened, what we know from psychology, social psychology, political science is, you know, you, you tend to really dig into your own, to your in-group there, if you want to think about kind of that in-group, out-group dynamic. And so it's, it's we know that it's part of someone's social identity, and that's it's really hard to get people to leave that. I mean, you think about, and, and anybody can think about, you know, what, what your in-group is, who's part of your in-group, and when that's challenged, how do you, how do you react, and how hard is it for you to, to leave your own group. I think that's just what happened. That's what's happening, but in a political sense. Mm-hmm. You agree with that, Evan? Yes. And thank you for throwing that to Chris to answer <laughs> <That's right. laughs> okay. because uh, I get to say, yep, Chris is right. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. I don't know how long, how, how um, much time you had to dig into that poll just released today. We've referenced, referenced it a couple of times today. Um, uh, but I wanted to get to the aspect, and perhaps you have other aspects of this poll to, to bring up. Um, preserving democracy tops the list of issues for voters in this election, but not for Republicans. Uh, Republicans most concerned about immigration. That's according to a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll. For Democrats, preserving democracy, top of mind when thinking about November, followed by inflation for independence, also preserving democracy, followed by immigration and inflation. Um, For Republicans, after immigration, it was inflation, uh, and nothing else came close. Uh, Evan, can I throw that to you about uh, the the results of this poll on preserving democracy and the division we're seeing between, well, Democrats and and independents on one side and the Republicans there on the other? Well, it's dangerous, but I'll give it a shot. I think (laughs) what you're seeing here is really what's on the minds of the people being polled. So if you are a Republican who watches conservative media all day long, you're going to hear everything about uh, immigration, immigration, immigration. So that's going to be top of your mind when you get a phone call and somebody says, what's what's your concerns? If if you're an independent, it's going to be a different, you know, exposure. And if you are a liberal and you watch left wing media, you'll be thinking about other things on top of that. So it may be uh, this idea of preserving democracy is just not something that Republican 
registered voters are just they're just not thinking of it. Yeah. But 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 at the same time, Evan, we know that um, voters in both parties see our democracy as under threat, but for different reasons. Right. Uh, Republicans uh, who buy into the so-called big lies see our the threat coming from rigged elections. Right. Yeah. Now that that gets into more uh, troubling uh, waters there. And that that's something that, again, I, I my only explanation is confirmation bias, uh, where if, if you're going to watch certain media outlets or listen to certain media outlets, that's going to be confirmed and reconfirmed. And so your belief there, regardless of what the judicial system is going to say or regardless of what you saw with your own eyes that day, uh, there's a tendency in, in human nature to to embrace your preconceived beliefs. Mm-hmm. Chris, uh, weigh in here on the question about preserving democracy in this poll. Well, I think, yeah, you know, to pick up on what Evan was saying, is just, just how polarized um, views are. And, you know, you know, whatever issue you're talking about, whether it's the economy, whether it's immigration, just how polarized, uh, again, voters who, who pay attention to politics, as, as Evan said, um, you know, we see that on every single issue and that on every issue, um, depending on, you know, which party's in charge, you know, we, we can see changes in those issues, but they fall neatly along party lines. And that's what we're seeing in this poll. And I think this poll, you know, tells us a little bit about what, what the 2024 election um, is probably going to be about or, or potentially could be about in the sense, as we talked about earlier, about the issue of immigration, right? That's going back to the 2016 election. It's certainly going to be about the economy. And whether you're an active Democrat or active Republican, you have different views about the economy, regardless of, you know, what, what the numbers may be saying in some cases. And, you know, I think you're going to see both parties continue to try to frame the election around around these issues about preserving democracy, about electability, about about immigration, um, and uh, you know I think what we've seen over time is just just how immovable public opinion can be on some of these issues. Right, we, we've talked before on the show about you know presidential approval rankings, how they've really sort of stabilized into this very polarized atmosphere where you don't see much movement during a presidential term between. Democrat and Republican voters about how they view a particular president, even with all the events that happen over the course of a four year term, you don't see a lot of movement because everyone is so polarized. And I think that 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 comes out, comes through pretty clearly in this poll. Mm-hmm. About 10 minutes left of our politics Wednesday before we go abroad. Chris, let's stay with you. First of all, mm-hmm. uh, we've got a, about a month uh, into this session of the Iowa legislature. Uh, pick one thing or a couple things that have attracted your attention at the state house. Well, I think, you know, it's it's moving along, as you would expect, when it, whenever you have unified control of state government, whether that's Democrat or Republican, you see a party when they have unified control is going to continue to push an agenda. Um, I think, you know, what we've seen here in Iowa is that uh, Republicans in the state house and uh, have continued to push on their agenda. They're talking about really, really significant big issues. Right. And, and, we, and this was part of the discussion last year as well, though, in terms of taking on the number one revenue source for Iowa's budget in terms of reforms to the individual income tax, talking about reforms to education, right? We know how much education is a part of the Iowa's budget. So we've seen those reforms. We've seen, um, 
you know, they're continuing to talk about the budget in a way that reflects kind of what what we've seen over the years when Republicans have control versus when Democrats have control in terms of how much of the state's projected revenues they they plan on spending for a year, right? We know Iowa Code says that you can spend up to 99% of projected revenues. Uh, when Republicans are in control, that, that number get, goes down a little bit. When Democrats in control, sometimes you see that number come up a little bit. And so um, I think it's unfolding sort of how we expected. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of party line votes at the subcommittee level on those three-person subcommittees, and, and that fits with the trend that we've seen over the last several years, and that fits with the trends that we've seen in state politics generally in terms of, you know, even state legislatures are becoming more polarized and, and starting to reflect what we see at the, the congressional level. And then I guess as, as an aside, you, you know, it was the same same dynamic in terms of these first few weeks that we see every session where a lot of bills are, th are, are mm -hmm. thrown out before this first funnel week. The, the bills that we've seen over the years are, are coming back, whether that's, you know, the, the speed enforcement cameras, um, the, the reintroducing death penalty bills. So I think it's it's proceeding as expected, but um, I think the the politics, the partisanship of the legislature has, has increased as we've seen in other states. Yeah. Um, after a month in session, Evan, what has attracted your attention to the State House? Well, I would just say, uh, following Chris there, those are the important concepts, but I, I promise I'll be more helpful when it comes to your Ron on this <laughs> Iowa State House. Let's dive into the Middle East in the last few minutes here and draw on your expertise, um, Evan. Um, Hamas, just to recap, you can elaborate here, has answered a proposal that could halt fighting on the Gaza Strip. Uh, um, Israeli intelligence officers believe at least a fifth of the hostages captured during the October 7th attacks have died since the start of the war. Uh, for years, Iraq has allowed armed forces tied to both the U.S. and Iran to operate on its soil. Uh, now that's uh, sort of becoming uncomfortable for Iraq. Uh, let's go back to that deal. We're waiting um, for a, a response to that proposal from Hamas. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Israel today discussing the deal with officials. Here's what he had to say about a possible deal yesterday. I'll pick up that conversation tomorrow in Israel uh, when I'm there, and uh, we will be working as hard as we possibly can to um, try to get a, an agreement so that we can move forward with not only a, um, a renewed but uh, an expanded agreement on hostages and all the benefits that that would bring with it. Evan, help us understand what this deal is about and the, the likelihood, in your view, of, of something happening to halt the fighting on the, in the Gaza Strip. Right. So Secretary of State Blinken went and did some negotiations with Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, and the Egyptians, and made a pitch to Hamas leadership. Uh, what the Secretary of State has not told the public yet is what Hamas's response was, because he wants to talk to the Israeli authorities, primarily, of course, uh, Netanyahu, to get their response. My assessment is... Uh, it's not going to be great because Hamas's demands uh, are going to be, I think, too much for Netanyahu to swallow. They want a permanent uh, ceasefire, right? Yeah, and the withdrawal of all Israeli military from the area. And I just, you know, as a, you know, from a realistic perspective, while we would all like to see ceasefire and peace there, if Hamas just 
it refuses to give an inch on some of these demands. It, you know, it leaves Netanyahu politically no room to maneuver. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about more what's happening in I- Iraq. Um, so there are forces tied to both the U.S. and Iran operating on its soil. And tell us a little, little bit what's what's happening uh, there. Yes, and this is all connected, of course, to what's going on with Israel. That's why, you know, as we're trying to broker this ceasefire, we're in a very, you know, the, the Biden administration has to walk an extraordinarily tight rope here. Uh, because if we do too much in retaliation uh, towards Iran's proxies or Iran itself, then we risk ruining the ceasefire. Uh, some people think if you could get a ceasefire, then Iran would suddenly tell its proxies to stop doing what they're doing. I don't think that that's realistic. So, you know, you have on the one hand this idea of deterrence. That is to say, forcing an adversary not to do stuff that you don't want them to do. That is something that we're not able to do. What we're doing, what you're seeing here is is degrading. Uh, That's the word we use when you degrade an adversary's resources. So the strategy or the option that the Biden administration has gone with here is sort of a reverse Goldilocks scenario where you, on the one hand, you want to pivot away from the Middle East, but on the other hand, you want to keep troops there to assist in, in mopping up groups like ISIS and, uh, and other, you know, ISIS is an Iranian-backed, but there's lots of Iranian-backed militias operating in the area of Syria and Iraq and all over that area. But in order to truly deter Iran from helping those proxies, you, you would probably have to invade or attack Iran, Iranian territory itself, which then you get into a whole different can of worms that nobody wants to open. Uh, the idea is if you just blow up enough of their missile sites and their radar sites and their weapons storage facilities, eventually the Houthis and these other militant groups will stop shooting. Well, that's true until they're rearmed and resupplied by the Iranian proxies. So you can see that this is an extraordinary complex dilemma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the final two minutes here, I wanted to look toward our weekend, one of the biggest sporting events uh, of the year, of course, the Super Bowl on Sunday, also infected with our partisan politics. A lot of media coverage about uh, these conspiracy theories, uh, uh, Chris, involving Taylor Swift. Music superstar Swift uh, dating the Kansas City Chiefs tight end uh, Travis Kelsey. Uh, their team will comport, uh, compete in the fourth Super Bowl in five years on Sunday. Right-wing critics saying their relationship, this one between Swift and Kelsey, is part of a plot to rig the NFL's championship game and help get U.S. President Joe Biden reelected. Just when you think... Uh, there could not be a weirder wrinkle in our politics. We have it, right, Chris? <laughs> yes, very, very unusual. And, and and obviously with the with the Taylor Swift um, discussion, you know, there's given her celebrity status, um, you know, in the there's speculation about whether or not she will endorse, uh, you know, she'll endorse Joe Biden. She's endorsed Democratic candidates in the past, and so that's then you see, as you said, politics now even coming into Super Bowl week. Yeah. Uh, how much would an endorsement like that count for, for Biden? I mean, he he does have a weakness among younger voters um, who are 
independents all the way to the other end of the spectrum uh, progressives, doesn't he? That that could be a, a potentially valuable endorsement? Potentially. The, the challenge is always quantifying the effect of, of, a, of a particular endorsement. Um, you know, we've seen her, uh, Taylor Swift, talk about, um, you know, re- the importance of registering to vote and, you know, that she got tens of thousands of uh, voters to, to register to vote in the, in the last election cycle. So certainly carries a lot of influence. Um, and, you know, I, I think still, though, trying to quantify that effect and given how polarized we are, um, it, I think it's hard to know what the effect would be. But you're right in terms of if she has a strong appeal among, say, 18 to 30 year, year olds, we know, as you said, we've seen polling that the 18 to 24 or 25 to 39 year olds that's, you know, President Biden does not fall as well there. And so there's the potential. It's just hard to know what the effect would be. Yeah. Okay. We've run out of time. I could ask you uh, each your top three Taylor Swift tunes, but we don't have time for that. So Evan, please save that for next time. <laughs> I'll have to look it up. So thank you. Ben. <laughs> well, Evan and I are both Chicago Bears fans. So we have we have the week yeah. off. We don't Go have Bears. To watch football. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, Evan Renfro is also a professor of political science at UNI. Chris, a professor of political science at UNI. Thanks for your analysis, guys. Uh, until we meet again. Thank, thank you. you. Tomorrow on this program, the second part of my conversation with author Jerry Harrington, Thunder from the Prairie, the title of his magnificent biography of the Iowa governor and uh, U.S. Senator Harold Hughes. Uh, We hope you'll tune in uh, for that tomorrow. Today's River to River produced by Danny Gere with help from Maddie Willis and Phil Moss. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Mm